We have a lot to keep in our prayers as we uh, pray for the missions team that is in Arizona right now on the Nahomi House missions trip. And uh, I'm excited to hear back from Tom and what God has, uh, will do in his life. I put forth a challenge to the uh, missions committee several months ago of the idea of sending, and I, this was the challenge I said, uh, eventually that we would send five short-term missions uh, teams uh, abroad, either in the United States or overseas, five short-term teams annually that, that we would develop a regular rhythm along those lines. I really believe in missions, not only for those that we can go and we can serve, but the, but the work that God does in the hearts of those that go and serve. And I really believe that God blesses us. I believe that God grows us in our faith when we step out and we uh, minister in that way. So it is a blessing for us to be able to explore those things and even to send a team off right now. I've entitled today's message, Lips and Life. Does what you say and how you live line up? And in this sermon today, we will give special emphasis to thinking about that question in light of your church involvement. Does what you say about church, your church, West Covina Christian Church, line up with what you actually do in church? And to me, as I have studied this, I think this is, hopefully, because I think the passage brings us to that, I hope this is a hard-hitting sermon because this is a hard-hitting Bible story. In the scripture that we'll read today, we're going to read about two people that are put to death for their deception towards the church. And God wants us to understand that He is really serious about what takes place in this place. So let's look at this passage of scripture together. The the passage is found in Acts chapter 5, and we will be reading verses 1 through 11. Acts 5, 1 through 11. It's a story that really piggybacks off of the passage that we uh, looked at last week, and I'll make mention of that in a moment. But let's read this together first of all. Acts 5, 1 through 11. And a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the disciples' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to, keep back part, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contri- uh, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for, uh, sold the land for so much.' And she said, "'Yes, for so much.' But Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we look at this passage together, that you would touch our hearts. We just commit this time to you and pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would come now and minister to us whatever it is that you would have for us from your word. May you bless us in that way and lead us in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the biggest problems among Christians today is that there is a glaring inconsistency between what they say they believe and what they actually do in practice. An outside observer who heard the Sunday morning sermon and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct and the daily lives of the congregants throughout the week might quickly conclude that she is examining two different and distinct contrary groups of people, or maybe two different distinct and contrary religions. It appears that too many Christians want to enjoy the feeling, enjoy the thrill of feeling right, thinking about how righteous they are and pious and good, but not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right by actually doing what God tells them to do. There is a divorce between our lips and our lives. And before we go any farther and examine the Scriptures, I want to just ask us, does that describe you? Are there differences between what you say you believe and how you actually live? The story that we just read here in Acts chapter 5 highlights these exact concerns with a story about a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira's lips and lives don't match up. They said that they sold a piece of land so that they could give the full price of the sale of that land as an offering to the church, but what they did was to give the church a partial offering. They wanted to keep back part of the money for themselves. The problem was not that they kept back part of the money. Peter makes it very clear in this passage that they had every right to do that. The, pro- the problem was that they lied about how much they were giving. And I assume they lied because they wanted to be recognized in the church. They wanted to be seen as righteous and generous people. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, this story stands in direct contrast to, uh, to, Barat- or to Barnabas that we read about last week. Remember, Barnabas went and he sold a piece of land and he brought the full offering and he laid it at the apostles feet and he was commended for doing it in fact he even got a nickname his name means son of encouragement and so maybe ananias and sapphira see what had happened to barnabas and they want the same kind of recognition they'd like nicknames 
They'd like a plaque or, or at least to be recognized in the community of faith and to be well-respected. But Peter, with the help of the Holy Spirit, sees right through what they are doing, and he calls them out on it. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then the consequences for the mistake are shocking. Both, first of all, Ananias, and then secondly, Sapphira, are both struck down dead on the spot. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And then Sapphira, coming in three hours later, not knowing what had happened to her husband, Peter asks her some questions. Is this how much you sold it for? And she says, yes, that's how much. And her, the consequences for her are just the same. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. At first glance, maybe this makes us a little uncomfortable because the punishment almost seems too severe for the crime. They told a lie, yes, and they kept part of the money for themselves, but they still gave a lot to the church. Couldn't Peter have simply rebuked them and given them a second chance? Couldn't he have pulled them aside just and reasoned with them and saying, come on, come clean, uh, just tell the community the whole truth and all will be well? Does he, do they really have to die for this offense? And the answer to those questions is found in a little phrase of, of verse 3 that I just read. Ananias' lie was serious because it wasn't just a lie to Peter. And it wasn't just a lie to the apostles or even the members of the church. He sa it says that he lied to the Holy Spirit. He lied to the Holy Spirit. And then, just to make sure we don't miss the point, verse 5 says it in a slightly different way. Peter says, And you have not lied to man, but to God. Now, I'm sure if Ananias was given the chance to defend himself, he'd say, No, 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 it's not really like that. Sure, yes, you caught me in my wrong. I lied, but I wasn't lying to God himself. And here is the critical point that drives home the application for us today. It is that in God's eyes, an attempt to deceive the community of God is an attempt to deceive God himself. An attempt to deceive the community of God is an attempt to, see, to deceive God himself. You see, starting right here in this passage we begin to get a, a clearer and clearer picture of what the church is. This passage, even though it seems that it's all about Ananias and Sapphira, is really about the church. And what is being presented here is beginning to lay the foundation that everything that God does in the world will from this point be, forward be explicitly and obviously tied to the work of the church. The church is central to God's plan. In fact, verse 11 of this passage is the first time in the book of Acts that the word church is actually used. Up until this point, the people of God have always been referred to as a fellowship of believers or all the people together. 
um, all the people, all the believers together. But now this almost sacred word church is used to describe God's followers. And what God is doing in the early church is his work in the world at that time. And the two go hand in hand. What the church does is the work of God. And what God does is through the work of the church. The two cannot be separated. And it's no different today. God is at work in the world. God's work uh, in the world is always done through the church. Now, that does not mean the church does not make mistakes or is, does not uh, have flaws. But despite all its flaws and inconsistencies, the church is still and always will be God's main way of doing work in the world. So think about all of the things that take place within our church. Worship and prayer, love and care for our neighbors, Sharing the gospel, building one another up in the faith, caring for the poor, the elderly, and children. This is the work of God. And this is the work of the church. Now, if the work of the church doesn't, now the work of the church doesn't just happen inside of these walls. Usually we say inside of these four walls, but kind of got more than four walls in here, don't we? Kind of angled around. But in the, the work of God doesn't happen just inside of these four walls because the church is called to go out and to be a light. But it always starts inside of these four walls. This is where we are commissioned, discipled, encouraged, and equipped through worship, preaching, and prayer. This is where we are organized to have growth groups and to do ministry so that we can do the work of of God in the world. And when we see people treat God with such apathy, to treat the church with such apathy as we do here in this passage, it ought to break our hearts because it breaks God's heart. The church expresses God's own self. God's intentions. And so when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church, they are accused of lying to God himself. You see, Ananias and Sapphira holding money back is not really the problem. The problem is that they are creating a false impression and commitment to God's people and to God's purposes. And I'm afraid that all too often we are all guilty of that same problem. We say with our lips that we love and are committed to the church, but our, lie, but our lives show that it's a lie. You see, verse 3 says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And what Peter is really saying is, Ananias, how could you do this? The church is sacred. It's at the very heart of God. Why would you ever commit this act? As Peter indicates, it's really an attack of Satan. We've seen throughout Acts that Satan is on the move. He tried to attack from the outside by persecuting the Christians, and now he takes a different strategy by trying to attack from the inside to deceive the church, to have the church members themselves deceive the apostles. And we know firsthand as a church, that Satan is still on the move. Amen? We've seen this all around us here even recently. 
And when the church is doing the work of God, be guaranteed, be sure of this, that Satan is not going to sit back idly and let it prosper. We've got to fight the fight. We've got to fight the evil one and be diligent. We've got to pray hard and we've got to protect the purity of West Covina Christian Church. Because if Satan tried to get on the inside of the first century church, he'll do the same in 2018. And so we must protect ourselves from deceit and gossip, from hypocrisy and lukewarmness and all kinds of evils that can sneak in. These are subtle, but these are dangerous attacks of Satan. These kind of sins can have serious implications to the ministry of the church. The reason that God acted so swiftly and decisively towards the deceit, the deceitful sins of Ananias and Sapphira was because the church was meant to be a strong community of safety and of security and of generous love and mercy towards one another. And if this lie creeps in, it threatens the holiness of this community. It's a threat to the church to be a refuge for all and a beacon of light and a beacon of God's light to the world. It would would then become, as Ananias and Sapphira seemed to want it to be, self-serving. That they would use it to glorify themselves and to build themselves up and to receive recognition themselves rather than to glorify God and to build God up and to give all of the glory and the praise to Him. And so we must guard against the same threats within our community. We must be bold to point out where, uh, to one another where we have gone astray. Where we are not committed to the work of prayer and the word and service to God. And we must make sure that we are always focused on glorifying God. This church does not exist for Pastor Corey. And this church does not exist for any uh, person that is a member here. This church exists for God and God alone. Now, we may not see people dropping dead in the worship service like Ananias and Sapphira did. Okay, that's a good thing. Uh, Let's hope that doesn't happen. But spiritually speaking, there are people dying around us all the time. Spiritually speaking, because of spiritual lukewarmness and hypocrisy, people are spiritually dying inside our church, even right now. The outward manifestation of this is when people are cut off from the fellowship of the church. Spiritual discipline was originally meant to be the way for church leaders to punish people when they had sinned against the fellowship of believers. Excommunication was its most radical form of of church discipline. Excommunication was the idea that uh, was a kind of spiritual death because church members were treated as a guilty person, as an unsaved person, and they were to be excommunicated from the life of the church. However, in our practice, it doesn't usually come to this. In a sense, people excommunicate themselves voluntarily. They simply stop coming, or they stop coming regularly regularly. 
And it's really and what is really sad is that people drop when people drop out of the church, spiritually speaking, they are dropping dead. Because they are cutting themselves off from the main way that God works in the world and in their lives. As we've said, God's, God is always working through the church. The spiritual truth of the, uh, the truth of spiritual dying that happens all around us all the time when people fall away from the church should grieve us tremendously. And when this reality does not shock us and grieve us to the degree that it should, it shows that we have lost some sense of the importance of the church. And in the process, we are, lo- we are in the uh, and in the process, we are losing some sense of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people. The swift judgment of God described in this passage reveals how intensely we should be thinking about God's holiness and our sinfulness and the seriousness of what the church is doing. When we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we ought not to get so defended about, offended about how quickly they are killed. Rather, we ought to be offended by the fact that they treat God and His church with such apathy. God is holy and He deserves to be treated with honor and respect. And maybe what we need is a little of the fear of God to wake us up as well. Two times in this passage, it mentions that the people were filled with the fear of God. In verse 5, after Ananias is killed, and then again in verse 11, after Sapphira is killed. And I can imagine that if two people were to die right here in our midst, uh, we would have the fear of God in us as well, and we might pray differently. In fact, I'm certain that we would pray very differently, and we would worship differently. We would serve, and we would give very differently. And I also wonder if we would have people running for the exit doors wondering if they would be next. And while the fear of God is terrifying, it does not seem that the fear of God as described here in this passage is something that people are running from. Usually we run from stuff that we are afraid of, right? I rec- I, I, a couple months ago, I, I think I mentioned this one other time, but I came across a very big snake on a hike. I am very much afraid of snakes. And you know what my first reaction was? Well, it was to jump up and then to run in the opposite direction. Usually we run a, a, from stuff that we are afraid of. But listen to what Acts 9.31 uh, says. So the church... Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplied. When the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the uh, comfort of the Holy Spirit, it grew like crazy. It doesn't say that it grew by addition. It grew by multiplication. It's expanding like crazy. And this happens when they walk along two paths, so to speak. One, it says they walk in the fear of the Lord. And two, they walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, doesn't this initially at least strike us as strange that we could have the fear of God and the comfort of God at the same time? These these two almost seem to be opposed. How can this be? It is because... The people have seen the power of God 
and the dreadful terror that God can avenge against those who sin against Him, and yet they find comfort in the knowledge that that power and that terror is no longer directed towards them. They have come to know the love of God and received His salvation from the wrath of God. We are always comforted by the fact that God's power is no longer against us, but is actually for us. And so they respected God because they have seen God's power and know that it is not something they would want to mess with. But they are not worried about being destroyed by Him. God's wrath towards them has already provided a death. It was the death of Jesus on the cross And so they don't worry about being killed by God because they know that Jesus has already died for them. But that does not mean that they do not still live in light, in in fear of Him, in that kind of respect and awe of God. C.S. Lewis uh, paints a picture uh, along these lines in a very interesting way in in his fables, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in this story, Aslan, the lion Aslan, represents Jesus. Aslan is a strong, fierce, and powerful lion. And the children of the story ask, when, introduced, when being told about Aslan, is he safe? To which the reply is given, safe? Who said anything safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And that is the God that we worship. Safe. Heaven, no, God's uh, not safe. Jesus is all-powerful, and he's fierce, and he's strong. In the truest sense of the word, he is awesome. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is almighty, and he deserves to be feared. And in the midst of that fear, we marvel at both his power and his love. That is how the early church could both fear God and have comfort in Him at the same time. In fact, when we have that same kind of fear and comfort together simultaneously in God's presence, we will multiply as well because that is the type of God that people are attracted to. pastor of a church I once uh, served on, John Piper, used this as an illustration to describe how Fear and comfort, the fear and comfort of God can go hand in hand. This is the illustration he used. Suppose you are exploring an unknown Arctic glacier in the dead of winter. And just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular views of miles and miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks in, and the wind is so strong that fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the edge of the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. And here you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on and you watch it now with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. At first there was fear in this terrible storm and awesome terrain that it might claim your life. But then you found refuge and gained hope that you would be safe. 
Not everything in the feeling of called fear uh, vanquished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. There remain the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you, uh, that, would, that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. And so that is a wonderful illustration to say, so it is with God. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have, safe, when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. And in that place of refuge, you say, this is amazing. This is incredible power. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awesome power of God, yet protected by God himself. Oh, what a terrible thing, as the scriptures say, to fall in the hands of the living God without hope, without a Savior. And I would never want to offend God, but what a wonderful privilege to know the favor of this God in the midst of His power. And so we get an idea of how we can have both fear and comfort in God's presence at the same time. Comfort turns to fear into a trembling and and peaceful wonder. Let me uh, say that one more time. Comfort turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder. And fear takes everything trivial out of comfort and makes it earnest and profound. So now let me read a quote from John Piper. The terrors of God make the pleasures of his people intense. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. We do not want to tangle with God. The story of Ananias and Sapphira teaches us that we do not want to offend God by disrespecting or not honoring his work in the church. We want our lips to line up with our lives. Now, it would be short-sighted to read this passage and assume that the message is, look out! God is very vindictive. Instead, the severe consequences of Ananias and Sapphira make this announcement, look out! This new splendid community of God's people called the church is very important and quite vulnerable. Don't you dare hurt it. And all the church and al- although the church has been brought into existence by God's own spirit, it remains at risk of being undone by the deceit of its own members. And so the point of this story is to teach us how important it is for our church to be pure and to be holy, for us as a people to have integrity and to have the fear of God even as we meet together. And if Peter and the apostles let, uh, if Peter and uh, the apostle had let Ananias and Sapphira get away with lying about how much they were giving at, to the church, then Satan would have crept in with his lies and began to harm this precious community. God's standards for West Covina Christian Church are just as high as they were for the early church in the first century. 
We are doing God's work in this church. And so God is just as passionate about us being a church of purity and of integrity and of holiness. And He is calling each one of us to make sure we examine our own hearts and lives so that we would not be the one through whom uh, Satan might creep into our midst. What we do with our lives is so much more important than what we say with our lips. We tell a lot more lives with what we do than what we say. And so let me close us with just some points of application. We lie with our lives when we don't pray together with other church members even though we say with our lips that God is calling us to be a church of fervent prayer. See, we've been been talking about this for many months, and we would lie with our lives if we don't actually, each one of us, come together. It's one thing to do it individually. That's true, and that's important. But what we see here in the passage is the church is a body of believers together. We lie with our lives when we don't come and pray together with other church members. We lie with our lives when we don't serve in the church, when we know that, that's, that God wants all of us to serve. We lie with our lives when we don't give generously and sacrificially, when we hear a sermon preached on giving, but it goes one in, in one ear and out the other. We lie with our lives when we say that the church is to be holy and yet we criticize it or complain or gossip about the people in the church or when we hear others doing this and we don't confront them on it. We lie with our lives when we say that worship is important because God is awesome and deserves our worship, but then we come late to church and we miss a lot of the singing and the prayer time. Or when we come very sporadically, we lie with our lives that we are saying that God is awesome and He deserves to be praised. Now I would, even though those are some very strong statements, I am confident that as I look around this room, there are so many people that I would not doubt for an instant how much they love this church and how committed they are. And may God help us to walk the walk with our giving, with our participation, with our worship, with our serving, and with our encouraging each other to, be, to, grow, uh, to help one another grow spiritually that we can do the work of God together. Acts 5, 1 through 11 shows us that we are called to honor God by honoring His church. In fact, the church is called the body of Christ because this is where Christ's presence dwells most powerfully. When we come together, let us fear Christ by respecting Him and honoring His church, both with our lips and with our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we just come before You and we thank You. 
We just pause before, we, before you because we come so trivially sometimes, so flippantly. And yet we come before you knowing that you are an awesome God of power. That if you so desired, you could snuff out every one of us in a heartbeat. And yet we also know that if you so desired, your power could set us aflame and we could be your people in mighty ways. And so, God, we come before you with fear and trembling and pray that you would have mercy upon us. And we know that you love us so much. You prove that by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And so we give you thanks that in the midst of your power, we find refuge in the cleft of right around the cross. And we find safety in your presence. May you fill us, God. May we be the people of God that you want us to be. And we thank you for how much you love us and you care for us. We thank you for our church and help us to honor you by honoring it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.